You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. My friends, let's open the book together. Colossians chapter 3 is where we'll be today as you're uh, turning there. It's, uh, it's really good to be back. So this is my first time back in the pulpit since a couple of weeks ago. I got up to preach and had what, what uh, medical doctors call people way smarter than me, call it a vasovagal response where I almost passed out. It was really strange. Um, and so first service, I got up and I was like, hey, I'm as curious as you are to see if, uh, if I'm going to pass out or not this time. But we made it through service number one. And so very, very grateful to be here with you. As um, you make it to chapter three there in Colossians, um, we're going to pick up in verse 18 and read through chapter four, verse one. If you'll go ahead and stand in reverence for the reading of God's word, we will dig into this text. Verse 18, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is God's word. You can have a seat. Well, one of my favorite texts in scriptures in 2 Corinthians, it refers to the people of God or the, the church as the aroma of Christ in that world, in the world. I love, I love that image that the church is meant to um, smell like Jesus in a sense. That, that image really harkens back to the Old Testament when a priest would um, receive the sacrifice of a person, cut up the animal and burn it on the altar. And as that scent would rise up, it said that the aroma was pleasing to the Lord. And, um, and so in the New Testament there, it says that um, we as the people of God, um, we are to smell like Jesus. People are, as they get around us, are meant to have a sense of what he's like and what he cares about, his priorities in the world. We smell like Jesus. My my wife, Erin, she is a, um, she's a great baker and she makes candles. And so depending on the day, when you come into my home, it just smells incredible. You're always hit with this unbelievable aroma. That's a good smell, don't get me wrong. But the, the aroma that I'm most concerned about in my home is not the actual physical smell. It, it's more, um, what's the aroma of the relationships? Like, is it obvious that Jesus has come to bear in power here? Is it clear that the gospel of Jesus has affected the way that we see and love one another? What does your home smell like? 
What's the aroma of the relationships in your home? Maybe some of you college guys are thinking about your literal home, and you're like, it's not good. <laughs> like it doesn't, it's not a good thing to smell my home when you walk into it. There's grace for you today, too. Is there warmth and grace in the relationships? What's behind the eye contact in your home? Is there disdain or delight? Is there laughter and forgiveness? Is there beauty in the way that the husband and wife and the children, or if you're single and you've got roommates, is there beauty and goodness? Or have, if we're honest, have things gotten a bit cool, a bit forced, a bit separate? You see, when Jesus comes to a home in power, the aroma of that home becomes irresistible. There's just a glory to it. This text uses a word that describes that aroma well, sincerity. That's the mark of a Christian household, sincerity. No, no pretense, no pretending to be something that you're not. Have you ever been at a, maybe a family meal before where it's like everybody at the table is committed to the bit that we are one big happy family, but we are most certainly not one big happy family? In a home where Jesus is king, that pretense goes away. There's sincere love for one another. You look at each other and you say, man, I don't have to pretend to love you. My heart is warm toward you. There's sincere care for one another, and there's even sincere obedience from children to their parents because they love their parents and want to obey them. My friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the ultimate sincerity. It's the ultimate mark where God says definitively, I am not playing around when it comes to rescuing my friends and my children. Complete in my devotion to them. And when, friends, that kind of love changes a home or a family, there becomes this gravitational pull that draws the watching world toward the living Christ. And that's what today's text points us to. This is about what happens when that sincere love of Jesus comes to bear in a household. So here's the main point of this text and the main point of today's Sermon. When Christ is present in your home, it's full of sincere service. We serve one another. We show up in the roles that God has given us to show up in with sincerity and love. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but the text gives these specific commands for sincere service to these three different sets in the household. You see husbands and wives over here, then you see fathers and children, and then you see bond servants and masters. And so that's what we're going to work through together. What does sincere service look like in each of these environments? So starting out with wives and husbands, look back in verse 18 with me. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Okay, let's stop there just a moment. There's a, 
Um, there's a command, first and foremost, to wives in a home to submit to your husband. Um, that, that word submit, it most literally translated, it means to, to yield to. Or another word for that is, um, or a phrase for that, is to reflexively obey. Like, does everybody feel good and offended yet? Everybody a little bit nervous, okay, about a word like submission? To reflexively obey means like, my heart is toward you. Like, I, I want to go the direction that you want to go for our family. A word like submission in our culture can set off some alarm bells, certainly. Like some of us, we hear that word, and we have had the word, you, the word submit used as a sort of battering ram by leaders or people in our life where we were just told to sort of shut up and sit down by people who didn't care. And so now you hear that word submit and it makes you feel a little bit ready to fight because before you were the only one who ever fought for you. So it makes you nervous. Others of us have have gotten what I might call a secondhand fear of submission, where maybe we've never had a bad experience with submission, but um, our culture as a, as a whole really doesn't like the idea of being a submissive person, and so it just makes you a little bit nervous. This text shows us that the biblical vision of submission ties the what of submission to the why of submission. That both of those things become deeply connected. The what of submission, what it actually looks like, and why submission matters. See, first the text points us, wives, sisters in the room, if you're married, God's desire for you in your marriage is to joyfully identify where God is directing your husband and to work with him to get there resource it, fan it into flame, multiply it. God just doesn't want you and your husband to be at odds with the direction of your family. No, he wants you to, um, he wants you to join and get in on the thing that God is leading your husband in. Unless your husband is saying, hey, I really want us to sin together. Like, man, you know what I think our family should do? I think we should betray the gospel and walk away. No, no, no. Submission in that moment doesn't look like following your husband into that place. No way. Submission looks like, hey, what do you want us to build together? Let's do it. I've got some ideas. That's what submission looks like. In another context, if we step out of marriage, maybe to help illustrate and fill this in in your mind, like, in a moment where I, as one of the pastors here, I say, hey, I believe God really wants our church to focus on developing leaders in the next season. And that's got to be a forefront priority for us. And then, I'm, and then some leaders and some staff and some members and some volunteers, they come in and they say, hey, I've been, I heard you talk about developing leaders and I've been praying, I've been thinking, I've been dreaming. Hey, here's, here's like 10 ways I've thought of that we can develop leaders. Here how I can see my gifts contributing to that work and here's a plan to execute it. That's submission. Like submission is actively engaged. It's not this pa- passive sort of, Um, whatever you say, and I'm going to keep quiet. No, 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 it's much more an active participation in the work. Why? Why submit, wives? The text tells us it is fitting in the Lord. It's fitting in the Lord. 
Here's what it's meant to be. No, this isn't always our experience, but here's what it's meant to be. It is meant to be intuitive, fitting, a, a hand-in-glove sort of a thing. It's, and when something is intuitive, it's not ill-fitting or ugly. No, 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 you're living in your own skin. This is how God designed submission to feel. What about when it doesn't feel fitting? I want you to remember this morning... Ladies, who is doing the commanding right here? It's not your husband. And it is certainly not a tyrant who hates you. It is a king who delights in you. A king who wants you to flourish. And in a moment where submission feels hard, and don't don't miss it, there's going to be a moment where submission feels hard. In that moment, your king is calling you to look past the moment and to look even past your husband and to see your king standing there saying, hey, I am doing something in you here. You can trust me. That's the command to wives. But husbands don't get off the hook here. In verse 19, we see the command to husbands. It says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So here you've got a command for husbands to do something and to not do something else. Let's look at it. First, he says, husbands, love your wives. I sincerely delight in them and appreciate them and recognize them for who God has made them to be. Like you might hear that, husbands, love your wives, and it doesn't sound like particularly controversial or strange or anything like that, but... That's because we live in a far more egalitarian society where men and women have equal rights, essentially, than these people did. Like the audience that this was written to, wives were essentially viewed as property or sexual objects or, or really a family business decision. Like, let's, let's put these families together and sort of consolidate power. So you have to understand how countercultural what Paul is saying here is. For husbands to love, to cherish, to care for their wives was a big deal. Like brothers in the room, if you're married, can I talk to you for a second? Your wife is not a tool in your tool belt. She is a crown of glory upon your head. She's a gift to you. Think about this. The God of the universe gave her, specifically her, to put next to you. He did that. Do you remember what a gift she is this morning? See, like our first father, Adam, it wasn't good for him to be alone. And then God created the woman and she stepped into the garden. And at that moment, I always picture at last by Etta St. James comes on in the background, right? He sees the woman walking in. At last, my love has come along, right? He, he goes, at last, bone of my bone. This is perfect. This is just the right fit. She was the perfect compliment to him, whether you feel like it or not this morning, God has given you the perfect woman by your side, the perfect woman for you. Like, brothers, think, that woman, 
That woman who gave her most productive and strong years to building a life with you. That woman who gave her life to bearing you children. That woman who took your dream for a life and made it more beautiful and dynamic than you ever could have imagined. That woman who said yes to you and no to everybody else. That woman who willingly gave both her body and her heart to you. Delight in her this morning. Like some of you have forgotten. She's a gift and it, it, it shows the sincerity has lifted because the love has diminished. And the word of God this morning is saying, you better get to treasuring, fellas. Get to treasuring. Husbands, love your wives, but then we have a command to not do something. Husbands, do not be harsh with her. This phrase, be harsh with her, literally means don't make her bitter. Like husbands, remember just a moment ago, Christ called your wife to submit to you. That's part of obedience to God for your wife. And you have in your hands the unique opportunity. There's almost nothing like this in the created order. You have the unreal opportunity to make obedience to Christ a joy and a delight or a living hell. Like brothers, if you are punting on your responsibility as a spiritual leader in your home, guess who feels the vacuum? She does. When you're harsh and critical and mean, guess who's stuck with discouragement and anxiety? Her. Can't you see how bitterness would start to grow, right? If, you're, if she's called by God to submit to you and you are mistreating her or misusing that authority, she starts going, I have to submit to him? Husbands, your disobedience can literally cause your wife to become embittered toward God. You may hear that and go, gosh, Nick, that's a lot of pressure. Like, I don't know if that's what I actually signed up for. Friend, it's a lot of pressure. Guess who you need? You need Jesus. Guess who you have? Jesus. By the power of his Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus is so absolutely with you in putting one foot in front of the other, in doing the thing that you're called to do. He's with you. Guess what starts to happen in a home <clears throat> when everybody's showing up in this way? Sincere love and connection starts to form. Beautiful relationship starts to form. The kind where you can walk into a home and tell when the husband and wife like each other, that kind of a thing. Oh man, it's beautiful. There's an author named uh, Rosaria Butterfield. I've read a couple of her books, but in some of her writings, she talks about back before she was ever a Christian, she was a professor at, I believe it was Syracuse <coughs> University, so highly liberal um, campus. She was a, uh, um, I think like a women's studies professor or something, and she started hanging out with a pastor and his family 
almost as research. Because she's going and meeting with these people and going, how do you, how can you believe this? And how repressed and traumatized are the people who are living in it? And so she starts hanging out with these people and asking questions. And, and so she, she writes at one point that she says, man, on paper, I would have looked at the idea of submission and leadership or something in marriage, and I would have, I would have absolutely vehemently disagreed with it. And I would have said, this is bad for women and bad for people. But she said, when I got in their home and I saw what the relationship looked like, I wanted it. I longed for what it did. And that's what happens when the gospel comes into a marriage. It creates this warmth, this pull. That's husbands and wives, but the text then turns and speaks to children. Children in the room, you're up. Let's chat. Verse 20, it says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. The text says, obey your parents in what? In everything. Not, obey if I understand the rule. Obey if I'm in the mood. Obey when I feel like my parents are being perfectly just. There's this moment in the office where, it's a television show if you haven't seen it, where one of the characters named Ryan, he says, I want leadership in my life. Don't get me wrong. I, um, I welcome leadership. But don't just like boss me around. Lead me, but lead me when I am in the mood to be led, right? Doesn't that sort of feel like what obedience feels like in our lives sometimes? Our attitude toward it? Being called to obey your parents' children is sometimes very tough. Like, can I tell you a secret about your parents? Your parents are people. They're just people. And that means sometimes they get it wrong. In fact, sometimes they even owe you an apology. Most of the time, your parents are trying their best, and most of the time, they want more than anything to bless you and help you become incredible adults. But when you are called to obey a person who gets it wrong sometimes, it can be really difficult to trust that it's good. Why should you do it anyway? The text tells us it pleases the Lord. Like kiddos, Jesus isn't just your parents' friend. He's your friend. He's your friend too. He is helping you become who he has designed you to be. So every time you hear your mom tell you to do something and instead of complaining or sighing, and you take a deep breath and you say, yes, mom. Guess who sees that? Jesus sees that and he says, yes. I, I love that. I'm proud of that. I, that's exactly what I'm after. Kiddos, when you think that there is a better way to do something, but your dad asks you to do it a different way, get this, obey first and respectfully ask questions after. Like if you say, yes, sir, okay, I'm going to do what you say. Hey, can I ask you a question about this? 
That's a heart of submission, a heart of obedience. When you do that, you're participating in something eternal. You're obeying Jesus, and he sees it, and he's with you in that. Next in the text, he turns and he speaks to fathers. Principally here, this goes for moms and and dads. Verse 21, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Fathers, don't provoke your children. That means don't intentionally make them angry. Can I be honest for a moment this morning and say, this one's kind of tough for me. Like, there are times I walk in my house and I see my kids sitting there and I don't know what it is inside of me, but I just want to bother them a little bit. Like, I just want to get under their skin and like, they're in the middle of something. I want to like push their buttons and just see what happens. And when I'm doing that, guess what I'm doing? I am undermining my own authority in their lives and I'm making it harder for them to obey. Like, friends, if you're a parent... whether it's because you just like them and you want to mess with them, or there's another thing that can happen where you sort of, you enter into the battle of wills with your children and you sort of square up to them. And so when the kid gets loud and gets a bad tone, you just raise and sort of match the volume and the tone. You say, you think you're going to rise up to me? I'm going to show you that I'm in charge. And when you do that, guess what? It raises the anger in the room instead of bringing loving connection and discipline. Like imagine for a moment if that were how God fathered us. If when you got angry and shook your fist at the sky, if he just flied off the handle and lost it and was like, I got to take a walk. Like, friends, in parenting situations, somebody needs to not lose it, right? That can be really hard, I know. I've failed at this plenty of times in my life. That's why we need the consolation of the gospel here. Your heavenly father, parents, is so stable so completely unrattled by the chaos that you bring him, when your volume goes up, guess what? He is quietly present. Fathers and mothers, both biological and spiritual, you are the parent. You are the adult. And just because your kiddos become angry does not mean that you need to be. If you're angry, guess what it produces in them? More anger. Get this, so often I think I get angry in parenting situations because I feel like my authority is being challenged. And I feel like I have to show my authority. Get this, the God of the universe has literally put you in charge in your home. You don't have to do anything to earn that authority. Now you've got it. You don't have to get angry. Take a deep breath. Don't escalate the anger in the room. Bring it down. Like, friend, if... You're disciplining like a Christian. The fact that you love your child should be obvious. When parents discipline and relate to their children this way and children move toward mom and dad in obedience, you know what happens? Connection 
sincerity, beauty. There was a time in my parenting as my kids were a little bit younger when I was honestly, if I'm honest with you, I was a little fearful. I was fearful of like, man, what if I discipline too much and they're not going to like me? You know what's really weird? The more that I've been clear about the boundaries of what life looks like in our home and what it means to be part of our family, my relationships with my kids have improved. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. That's children and fathers. The last section of the text we need to look at today are bond servants and masters. I want to read verse 22 through the end of the passage again, and then we need to spend some time chatting about this. It says, verse 22, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So for context here, if you don't know what a bondservant is, a bondservant was a sort of indentured servant, if you've ever heard of that, who, who often lived with a family. That's why they include bond servants in the, the household instructions here. And what that relationship typically looked like was, hey, I'll work for X period for X number of dollars. Or I'll work, for, if you'll forgive X debt, I will work for Y number of years to pay off that debt. I think the best modern equivalent of this relationship is like the employer-employee relationship. Or if you, um, maybe you've been like a live-in nanny before, um, and it's like, hey, room and board is like part of my payment. It's probably the closest to that in modern terms. Sincerity would have been extra hard for somebody who's a bondservant. Think about it. Because while they lived with the family, and they might have at times in good situations felt like part of the family, there was no inheritance waiting for them like there was for the sons and daughters in the home. It would have been really easy to think, why would I waste my love on these people? Like, I'll do what I have to do, but I'm not going to love them. On the other end of the spectrum, there were some of these masters who would have been cruel and thoughtless and ruthless toward the servants in their home. Like imagine trying to love a person who is beating you and mistreating you. But for the Christian bondservant, they were serving a higher master. Did you notice the commands to bond servants? First and foremost, it says, obey your masters. Then this very interesting phrase, not by way of eye service, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. You know what eye service is when you're, you're doing your job with eye service. Has anybody ever, mass confession's good for the soul. Let's go ahead. Um, has anybody ever tried to look busy at work before? Isn't it a little bit harder to look busy than to actually do the task sometimes? You're like, man, that spot's getting really clean right there, right? You're going to wear the finish straight off of the floor. 
That's eye service. It's the appearance of doing what is required, but it's the minimum requirement. It's like, I'm here, but I'm going to do everything I can to passively, aggressively, and or passive-aggressively communicate that I don't want to be here. The Christian bondservant was called to look past their master, whether they were just or unjust, and say, because I treasure Christ, I am going not only to obey you, but I am going to respect you. Here's where it gets so distinctly Christian. Only Jesus can cause us to respect the unrespectable. I mean, how can you do that when you have a terrible boss, when you have a terrible manager in your life? Like for some of you, you go to work and you do have bosses and managers who are unjust toward you. They don't deserve your respect. And yet Christ is saying to you, their goodness is irrelevant to what you are called to do here. In fact, what if your relentless pursuit, I'm going to respect you, I'm going to make your life better, even when you keep making my life harder. What if that's the story that we tell in the baptismal in a year or two, where you're standing there with your boss, and your, your boss is saying, I was terrible to this person, and they relentlessly and ruthlessly respected me and loved me, and I finally said, what's your deal? And I believe the gospel. The truth is, you and I, we have the privilege of being in a situation where most of us can quit. Like, you don't have to stay and be abused in a job. But hear me, while you're there, respecting them, according to this text, isn't about pleasing them. It's about pleasing your king. You got to look past them. You got to look to the king. And in verse 25, we are reminded of the glorious truth that every injustice against you, every slight, every time you were overlooked for a promotion, every time you were disregarded, they don't get away with it. Those things are seen by the Lord Jesus. And he's saying, hey, I'm going to take care of that. Remember who you serve. I am the God of all justice. He is cultivating an inheritance for you. Not your boss. Did you notice the last person this text speaks to are masters or those in authority? What's the text say? Treat your bondservants justly and fairly. Bosses, managers, overseers of any kind in the room, if you have authority over people, the calling from Christ on your life is to be just and fair. It doesn't mean to be a pushover. No, no, no. To be just and fair means you have clear expectations and you enforce those expectations equally. Not because this person's your favorite and you don't like this person's personality. No, no, no. Not unreasonable standards that can't be kept by anyone. Not mean-spirited in your leadership toward others. You don't have a person that you really want to fire and you put them on a terrible job because you're trying to get them to quit so you don't have to give them severance. That's not godliness. Treat them justly and fairly. That's a calling on your life. 
as we close, band, you go ahead and, and come up. I just want to, I want to frame a couple of things from this whole text and start asking the question, okay, if we want to see these kind of employer-employee relationships and parent-children relationships and husband and wife relationships, how do we start to breathe the sincerity of Jesus into our households? A couple of things as we finish. Number one, notice every party in these situations is meant to look up before they act out. Like, look at God. What is he like? And then that affects how I relate to these other people. Like, what is God like? How does he yield authority? I'm going to yield authority like that. How does Jesus submit to the Father? I'm going to submit like that. God offers both the pattern and the power for obedience in this. Number two, friends, a home of sincerity isn't limited only to the married. Like you've heard me talk to a lot of children and husbands and wives today, but principally you need to know if you are single, your spiritual children, your friends, your roommates will benefit from you cultivating this kind of love, covering, and care in the way that you relate. And if you're single now, but you don't believe God is calling you to a lifetime of celibacy, then now's a really good time to attach yourself to a family that's trying to do this and learn how to do it. I mean, I tell people all the time, they're like, hey, can we hang out with you? And I want to watch you parent your kids. And, and I often say, yes, we would love that. And I want you to see everything that I do right. And I want you to see the stuff that I fail at so you can do it a little bit better than that. Find a godly couple in this church and ask yourself, ask if you can join them. The third thing I want you to see is something about God's heart in all of this. God provides the greatest protections for those with the least amount of power in these relationships. Did you notice that? The wives, the children, and the servants, those who are at the mercy of the authority of another person, Jesus loves to cover and protect, right? Doesn't he look at the husbands and say, don't be harsh, right? Love, don't be harsh. Doesn't he look at the fathers and the parents and say, don't um, exasperate your children and on and on and on. He calls them to a standard because he's protecting the vulnerable. Like friend, today, believe, receive. Jesus loves the weak. He loves the little guy. He loves the down and out. He loves the person who is too afraid to raise their hand. And he takes his great strength and he covers them. And then the final thing I want you to remember and point to, maybe the most important thing that I'll say today, is until you experience and receive the sincere love of Christ, you can't build a home like this. You just leave here, try to do the principles, but you have not met the God of sincere love. I want to introduce you to my friend and Lord Jesus today. He did not die for you out of obligation. He gladly submitted to the cross to please his Father. He rose and he patiently loved his disciples, even those who had a hard time believing.
Can you receive the sincerity of Jesus today? Here, he does not merely tolerate you as part of his family. He welcomes you in. He is, dare I say, glad to be with you. And by simply believing, receiving the invitation to come into his family and laying down all the things that are entangling, the sins and the brokenness, you will find a respectable father, a warm friend and an, in Jesus and an understanding brother. That's what you get in the gospel. And when this hits you, when this love, the love of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit begin to hit you, hey, good luck not building a home of sincere service. Cling to Jesus. And man, this starts here and he fills this city with those kind of homes. That's gospel saturation. Let's ask him to do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just confess that we need you this morning. I'm aware there might be some of us in the room right now even who are hearing this and we go, man, I've done too much damage in my home. It's too far gone. I've said too many wrong things. I have, the relationships are too broken. There's no coming back from this. And God, I just pray that you would give the strength and the courage for them to go first. Say, if there's no sincere love anywhere else in this home, I'm going to go first. I'm going to look to Jesus and be loved by him. And then I'm going to sincerely love my family. you heal the brokenness in our households. You bring a culture back of sincerity and honor and love. And God, we want to do this to lift you up. Show the world what you're like. Holy Spirit, I invite you to do your good work in our hearts today. Shape us, change us, lead us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, friends, we don't just want to be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. The book of James tells us that it would be so foolish to look in a mirror and then forget your own face. That's as foolish as it would be to hear the word of God and, and sense the spirit of God working in your heart and then just walk away without responding to him. So I just want to invite you today. Man, how is the Lord stirring in your heart to obey him this morning? How is he stirring in your heart to see who he is afresh in his glory? As you see that, man, respond to Jesus. Respond. We've got um, some friends in the back. I'll be in the back during the second worship set. If you're a member, I'd actually just invite you. Go back there to be open to pray with people. If you've got some brokenness in your family and you're going, man, I just need the Lord's help here. Or you're struggling. Maybe you're in a situation where you're being called to submit to someone who's not very good to submit to. Or you're um, being called to um, lead in a way where somebody's not able to submit yet. And you just need the help of the Lord. We'd love to pray for you and encourage you in the back of the room.
Number two, for followers of Jesus, we invite you to remember the Lord's death by taking the Lord's Supper today. Right here at the front, you're going to find um, bread where G- that represents when Jesus took bread and he broke it and he blessed it. He said, this is my body broken for you. This is um, the cup of my blood and the new covenant. Take this, remember, proclaim my death until I return. When we come to the table today, as the people of God, I want you to remember the sincere love of Christ in his death and resurrection. Receive it by faith. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this just isn't for you yet. I'd invite you to bow your knee to the King today and take the supper with us for the first time as a follower of Jesus. Friends, the final way we respond is by rehearsing. A day is coming when obedience is not going to be so hard. Christ is going to have made all things new. And so we're just going to sing today like that moment's here right now. We're going to sing and drag that future into the present. As we do. You say, I love you. I love being your pastor. Respond.